We have now released issue three of the New Thinking Aloud magazine. Download it for free at newthinkingaloud.org. New Thinking Aloud is a non-profit endeavor. Your contributions to the New Thinking Aloud Foundation make a meaningful difference in our ability to produce new videos. Thinking Aloud Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is living with the Ruchira avatar. My guest is Julie Anderson, a former Playboy centerfold model who was one of several intimate companions of the spiritual master Adida Samraj. For 16 years, from 1976 to 1992, during those years, she was considered an individual of high spiritual attainments and was known as Kanya Samarpana Remembrance and also Swami Dhamma Dalotara Devi and a number of other names. Adida, the spiritual master, has also been known by many other names, including Da Lavananda, the Ruchira Avatar, and Franklin Jones. His writings have been highly praised by many thoughtful students of spirituality, including three well-known philosophers, Alan Watts, Jeffrey Kripal, and Ken Wilbur. He died in November of 2008. Julie left the spiritual community founded by Adida in 1992 after a deep process known as reality consideration. Julie currently lives in Australia, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Julie. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much, Jeff. I'm extremely grateful to be here with you and for you giving me this opportunity to be able to speak with you. Thank you. You're very welcome. I think you have a, a most unusual and important story to tell. And I think it would be very useful if we could go back to around 1976 or so, uh, when you first encountered Adida, and maybe talk about what your life was like just before that. Okay. So it was in 1975 that I first came across Adida, and I was visiting Berkeley. And I went to Moe's Bookstore on, I believe it's the... Telegraph Avenue. I know it well. Say, yes, Telegraph Avenue. And I saw the book of Adida sitting on the shelf. That was my first introduction. And, of course, it, the cover of that original version of the method of the Siddhas was a vision or an image that I had never seen before. So it was both captivating and a bit of a curiosity, I would say. Like, what is that? <laughs> uh, it had an image of Adi Da when he was younger, much younger, 
and uh, he was sitting in a seat with a, a lot of decorative uh, fabric and such behind him. And I thought, what is Elvis Presley saying in a situation like that? It had that kind of impression to me. Um, very attractive man, and but then I'm picking up the book and beginning to understand something about him as a person was what drew me in to the relationship to him. And then it, I returned back to uh, Southern California, and I was going to UCLA on a scholarship there as an art student. And it was I was living close by the university, and I was then beginning to study more of the teaching, the need of listening, and becoming familiar more with the context of his communication and his life and the traditions around his life. Uh, I, at that time, was a very ordinary young woman, and living in California, I had the culture of L.A. around me, and I was very, very fascinated with mainly artistic things. I spent a lot of time in museums and painting and drawing and studying sacred art history and art history itself. And so I was beginning to expand in my awareness beyond just my very provincial and localized view of life when I was a young girl and and began to adopt actually some of the various disciplines that were given as for students of Adida, uh, just out of curiosity more than any intention to become involved as a devotee, because uh, my life was fairly established at that time in with my family and with what I was doing there and with a young man that I was involved with for a couple of years at that time. And then I also had an unusual thing happen, which is that I ended up modeling as a Playboy centerfold. And this was an interesting event because it brought me into a, the complete opposite of what it was that I was beginning to be involved in with Adi Da. So I had two paths before me, one in which I could go one direction very easily because I was quite drawn into that uh, aspect of life. Um, which is very different than what another door had opened that would be a spiritual aspect of life. Not that the two are incompatible in that regard, it's just that I had a crossroads before me. The long and the short of it is that I had a very, very strong experience of Adida and what the spiritual process is. Now, my knowledge of the spiritual process at that time was extremely minimal. However, I was not unfamiliar with religious practice or unfamiliar with the psychophysical nature of reality in life, because as a young girl, I had always had unusual phenomenal experiences. In other words, out-of-body experiences, astral travel, um, very strong intuitive personality, uh, ESP, premonitory intuitions. These were not unfamiliar to me. However, I had not studied anything about it. 
And I actually didn't communicate a lot with others about it. It just felt like it was a natural part of life that I was aware of. And I think because of my artistic endeavors and my intuitive um, side and appreciation for aesthetics, and also because I had become a born-again Christian for a period of time, my sense of spirit and uh, life being more than just the gross physical manifestation was something that I was available for. So I would say at that time I was ready for something different to happen because on top of that, sadly, I was extremely neurotic in the sense that I was an anorexic, bulimic personality. So I was had a tendency to dissociate from life, um, mainly because I was very troubled by what I observed to be a, a significant uh, pain and sorrow in relationship to life in terms of the sense of how people suffered, not just myself, but also feeling that I was trapped in a personality that had so much focus and attention on how I appeared to be, uh, obviously signed by my participating with the Playboy Centerfold and just a lot of what the psychophysical impact of being in L.A. around the Hollywood matter and models and achieving and competing and being seen and <laughs> all of those kinds of aspects of what the L.A. scene is like. Um, of course, that's not all it's like. I don't like generalizations because there's so many nuances around any situation that we find ourselves in. But when I look back on it, that was my perspective at that time. It was very narrow. And so this was a, a, an incredible 1975-76 was an incredible opening. And to return back to the experience that I had of Adi Dop, this was before coming into being close to him. Uh, I was would study often and listen to his voice on albums at that time. And I was listening to an album called The Gorilla Sermon. And I was also looking at a picture of him. And interestingly enough, when I viewed him bodily, in, in his physical bodily form, I would, I fell in love with his physical form because his body reminded me of Michelangelo artworks. And that is, was something that I didn't know what to make of and why, but it was just, I was extremely drawn into the physical form of his person. And then at that time also his voice and his laughter and the profundity of what I was beginning to hear him communicate was something that was both new, extremely interesting, something I was very curious about, given that it was providing an opportunity for freedom, um, fundamentally addressing something that was really clear to me about the nature of suffering. And But what was odd about it is that I also felt a bit offended by it because he was accusing the ego <laughs> of being responsible for this. And as I grew up with a sense that 
ego was to be cultivated, was to be grown, was to become strong, was to become responsible, all of those aspects of the ego development as a human being. So that was not foreign to me in terms of, of relating to that aspect of life, but I found it quite a lot to swallow in terms of the, what he was speaking about, in terms of the ego fundamentally dying, being destroyed, going beyond, transcending the act of egoity. Um, so I was in listening to him, having studied a bit, known about him, listening to his voice as he was speaking in the Gorilla Sermon, which is one of the writings and earlier pieces of his work, and looking at an image of him, and then suddenly, without any effort at all, there was an incredible force of presence and literal, as if I was being smeared or in a force of energy entering into me so forcibly that it completely drew me into a sense of not feeling like I was familiar with the shape that this body was taking. I was conscious the whole time, but my whole form became a different form with such force that it was both extremely blissful but extremely uncomfortable too because it was unfamiliar to me. And the force of it was so strong that I had to automatically lay back just to allow it to occur. Uh, and then it, it enveloped every part of my being, like every aspect of my being, all the way down to my toes. And if, if you were to imagine us to be like the shape of, shape of a, a rock that's in the form of a spherical oblong shape, um, the force of it came all the way down to the base of my body, so extremely strong that every part of me then kind of rose in this feeling of bliss through every part of my body, and I fell in love. That, that's what it was. It was I fell in love, and a love that was beyond anything I had ever known before in terms of being attracted to or having a boyfriend or even what I knew as love in relationship to the spirit of Jesus. Although not too dissimilar because there were forms of a reception of the spirit with my process with Jesus and with Bible study and being involved in that process. So there was a linking with that that was not unfamiliar. But that moment marked, and still to this day, I'm comprehending what occurred in that particular event. This was before you ever met him in person, I gather. Yes, this is true. Yeah, before I ever met him. Yes. And and also for clarification, as I recall, you were originally from Utah before you came to Los Angeles. Yes, I was born in Ogden, Utah, and there's a street in Ogden, Utah that's just beautiful. If you, as you look down the streets, you can see the beautiful mountains with the snow on top. And every time it was my birthday, <laughs> my father would remind me of this beautiful day on this street where the hospital was, and it was early in the day, and he he's very romantically describes this wonderful day of me being born in Utah. Um, we lived there only until I was around uh, three years old, and then my family with my older brother and my younger sister, we moved to California, to Southern California, and that's where I grew up. 
spent my time in the valley that's just through the canyons of Topanga, Mulholland, Malibu. At some point, you, with uh, the boyfriend you had at the time, came up to Northern California, where I, I gather that's where you first encountered Adida. Yes. So from Southern California, um, his name's Mark. We were there and um, became more and more interested in moving up to Northern California because there was the Mountain of Attention Sanctuary that was established there, a retreat center and understood to be a traditional type ashram. I didn't know anything about what that meant or what that environment would be like. Uh, but we, I ended up leaving, ended up leaving Southern California, uh, packing everything up. And in the middle of university life and life in LA and life with my family and went up there because the pull was so strong to be able to find out more about this offering, you know, this way of life. And Mark was um, really keenly interested also. And so we ended up going up there together, driving up with a friend, uh, everything packed in the car. And we landed in San Francisco and we landed in what was called a household because the devotees at that time, there were many, many, many devotees that lived in San Francisco, Marin and the surrounding areas um, up by Clear Lake, which is where the sanctuary is, and uh, landed there in a household where a number of devotees lived. And we, as devotees early on, it was recommended that you live cooperatively because it was understood that the process of spiritual life had to occur in what Adida described, that the greatest form of renunciation is the cave of relationship. <laughs> Not the cave of being removed from life, but actually being fully entered into life. And so we, in living collectively, a lot was learned by having to live that close with other people. So we landed in this household, and that was interesting in and of itself, <laughs> just being in that kind of a situation. And then as Mark and I were there, um, we also discovered that, oh, life with devotees is not just about living a life of spiritual practice with a significant amount of disciplines, meaning yoga, meditation, study, kind of a specific type of a um, very disciplined diet, um, you know, no meat and mainly vegetarian. Um, there was studying of the great tradition. Um, there was a, the sense that a discipline was to be a loving person in life in service to other beings, all beings, um, many forms of these types of disciplines. And then suddenly there was a party call. So we had what was called gathering periods where suddenly beer would come out, cigarettes would come out, and all the disciplines would be thrown to the four winds. And then we would have the flip side of the coin to investigate what our personality was like, what our desires were like, what our, where our energy and attention went to, a sense of what taboos were about. So this is what was happening like within the first week that we landed in San Francisco. <laughs> 
Now, if I understand correctly, there was a phase in the teachings of Adida. I think it was called the goddess in the garbage period, something like that, that, that involved this type of what you could call, I, I don't know, um, wild behavior. Yeah, yes. It was sometimes it was wild and sometimes it wasn't. So, um, we, at this particular period of time, it was post garbage in the goddess. That occurred earlier on. So I arrived in mid 1976. And while the garbage in the goddess was a particularly dramatic time, there were periods of time where we continued to make use of what we described as accessories. And partly what it was is a way of loosening everyone from the notion that true spiritual life required a kind of a renunciate life that would be celibate, where you'd have to wear a certain costume, you know, you'd basically be eating nettles <laughs> or, you know, something really severe types of discipline of denial in relationship to the impulses of the, of the incarnate bodily being. And, uh, these periods of time were actually equally as confronting as they were embracing severe and significant discipline of the body-mind. Um, so the wildness uh, from a conventional perspective, I believe, probably has been coined because of the fact that we were oftentimes involved in a process of investigation, in action, and in study relative to what is described as money, food, and sex. Emphasis on the sex part, because that's what seems to fascinate people, you know, is to um, want to focus on the wildness as being things that has something to do with just the emotional sexual character. That's true. We did investigate a lot of that, and it was extremely confronting. Because that's where all of the nitty gritty goblins and ghosts and different things hide. Oftentimes it's called the shadow side, where people don't really want to investigate that, that much. However, our process, and this has continued to be the case, is always an investigation of all aspects of life. You know, that it can't exclude anything. So yes, there were wild parties. Um, and some of the things that are understood to be, have happened during those times, I couldn't really address all of them because each individual who may have something to say about what they experienced or what gossip may be evolving as a result of that, I wouldn't be in a position I can just communicate what I experienced with, with authenticity. Um, but I would say that I can understand really clearly and I have no reaction to what people have experienced or even how they have reacted because it, it's comprehensible um, from the perspective of myself having experienced similar things and also have had similar reactions. So it's... Um, a necessary process to have to go through all these kinds of feelings to actually take responsibility for the awakening in spiritual process and practice and truth. So that's uh, 
a very colorful part of the relationship with him. And I'm happy to speak in more detail about that because I know many people are curious about it. Aside from the garbage and the goddess period of Adida's teachings, I'm under the impression that in general he was regarded as being in a, a tradition known as crazy wisdom. And there were other gurus so uh, who are associated with with that idea of cra of crazy wisdom, and I I presume that was perhaps uh, something that he was known for throughout his life. Yes, this is true. And crazy, the crazy wisdom tradition. I think it would be fair enough to say that probably most of humanity has no comprehension of what that actually means, um, particularly Westerners. Uh, and as the world is becoming more and more Westernized, I would say that it's probably true that even the Eastern traditions are not that familiar with the crazy wise traditions. Um, there seems to be more and more of a shutdown relative to the explorations beyond what is conventionally, politically, and socially acceptable, even religiously acceptable, or even spiritually acceptable. There's a real clamping down on the investigation of life in all of its totality. So at that time, however, when I came around Adidas, you remember the 60s and 70s were a different type of era where there was much more of an opening. So a lot of what we were doing was actually not uncommon um, in, in relationship to what was happening worldwide in, in terms of there being a kind of an, a renaissance of a kind <laughs> in, in this exploratory fashion. Um, of course, there were people who vehemently hated that, opposed it immensely because it was a threat, you know, to possibly what was the uh, program of the day. <laughs> and uh, so, so with the crazy wisdom tradition, um, another word for the crazy wisdom tradition could be Tantra. Um, there are aspects that I experienced immediately in Adida's company was that he began to speak and had even previous to my being there about the different ways in which we could live humanly, religiously, or spiritually, and transcendentally. So there was all these aspects of life that I was beginning to learn about, and he was beginning to reveal to me and to show me directly, not through just study. Um, we did a lot of studying, like studying the great tradition, um, he coined that word, the great tradition of humankind, which is about all the different traditions that have happened through all the cultures in human, religious, spiritual, and transcendental terms. So my entire life has been a significant investigation served by his teaching, but also served by his asking us to invest ourselves in the study of all the traditions so that there wasn't just, it, he wasn't asking us to believe anything. We actually were in a process of investigation and study, significant study. And then part of the crazy wisdom that he took on and we practiced and with one another and with him 
was that nothing was taken at face value in terms of what it seemed to be. So we had to enter into experimenting with different forms of practice and process. Um, and that occurred in relationship to every aspect of life. And so, and I think this refers to something that you call the a social experiment. <laughs> a penetrating social experiment, yes. Yes, yes. And I, I, I thought that was brilliant because it, it was that and um, the social was accompanying, you know, an accompanying of all of, of um, what I had just described relative to life. So um, it took you well beyond the social persona because you had to drop the social persona in terms of trying to hold on to assume you had to be a certain way or believe a certain something or have certain presumptions about things. It was a discovery and a revelation process in relationship to him as the teacher and the Siddha guru who had realized what he describes as reality itself, the bright itself. And so the, the bright itself or reality was the context and the feeling of being context and the transmission that was the, the vessel or the space within which all of this consideration took place. And what we were doing was always asking the question, is this truth? Is this sufficient? Is this love bliss? Is it true of everyone and everything? Or is it separative, dissociated, isolated, conflictual? Or is it all-inclusive? So that this crazy wisdom process is what we entered into in terms of even diet, even in terms of how we served our environments, even in terms of how we would relate to different skills that we have as an artist, for example. That was a whole process of development took place in terms of my artistic skills, as it did with Adi Da himself. And um, the particular characteristics of myself as an individual was something that I had to begin to know really clearly in order to be able to practice an aspect of what he describes as radical self-understanding. So the crazy wisdom process was about constant self-observation relative to the manner in which this being manifests where energy and attention is drawn. Now let's talk about the, the time when you first encountered him bodily, physically, in your presence. Okay, thank you. Yes. So a lot had built up in my feeling and my anticipation because of what I had experienced before being there with him. Uh, so when I was in San Francisco, we were invited up to go to the Mountain of Attention to participate in a weekend retreat. And this weekend retreat happened to be a period of time in which there were gatherings going on where these accessories were being used. And however, every time accessories were being used, there was also, um, coupled with that, we would still enter into 
meditative practices or what would be described as devotional practices known as puja or um, ritual practices that would involve um, holy sites, temples, uh, the sanctuary itself. So when I entered onto the Mountain of Attention Sanctuary, the first thing that I noticed, um, which has to do with his form again, and, and actually seeing him, was that there was a palm tree there in the middle of the sanctuary, one really tall palm tree, and immediately I recognized I have seen that palm tree in dreams my whole life because I would have a reoccurring dream of walking down a street and everybody was walking their dogs except for me. And in this reoccurring dream, I was somehow not visible in the dream objectively, but I felt that I was naked in the dream. I couldn't see that I was physically naked, but somehow I was naked in the dream, and I was watching everybody walking their dogs. And what I noticed is that the person and the dog looked somewhat similar, and I thought that was amusing. And at the same time, there was this heartbeat that was sounding really loud in my ears, and there was the heartbeat was simultaneously a rhythm that I was following, but it was also a uh, a sense of threat to it because there was a sense it could stop or it could end at any point. And then as I was hearing this heartbeat and feeling that rhythm more and more and seeing the humor of the situation with the people and the dogs and them walking them with their chains, I began to move quicker and quicker and quicker. And suddenly I came across this big palm tree. And spontaneously I went up to this tree and I hugged it. And that hugging, everything came to a stillness. And the tree and the heartbeat came to rest. There was no more vision of the, the humans and the dogs and the chains and all of it just came to rest. And when I saw the palm tree, I knew that this was the place where I was meant to be. So that was another experience before seeing Adida physically, but he was on the sanctuary. And so the feeling of anticipation and excitement, nervousness altogether was um, really full in my expectation of coming to see him. So right by where the palm tree was, there was... a a building that was called Huge Helper, which is a place where he would gather with devotees there. And beside it, there were two meditation halls. One was called Extraordinary Eyes. And suddenly there was a bell, a big bell that was ringing on the sanctuary. And that was the notification for everybody. Suddenly everybody saying, go to Extraordinary Eyes, go to Extraordinary Eyes. And so I didn't know where that was, but I just started following everyone. And before I knew it, I found myself sitting in the back of a big hall. It was like a cathedral. Actually, it was called the cathedral at that time. I may get my terms and names and words and places mixed up (laughs) just because I'm a bit older. But I'm remembering, actually, this was called the cathedral at the time. Yes. And when you when I walked into this room, it felt enormous. Obviously, it had a shape to it, but it, it felt enormous. 
I sat down in the room, and then soon after that, Adida came walking from the back of the hall, and he took his seat in the front of the hall. His seat was slightly raised a bit so that everyone at the way back of the room could see him. So he was on what we call the dais, where his seat, everybody was able to view him. And as he sat down, suddenly what I began to see was the everything around me became like a peripheral view, even if it was somebody close next to me. And it kind of faded into a... Um, a, 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 it was fused with light at the same time, as if there was gentle rain coming down. And then my vision became extremely focused on his physical body. And when that occurred, I started to see visions of icons from what I know to be now the great tradition. Like I saw Jesus. I saw Buddha. I saw sages, I saw deities of different kinds, and in his form, I wasn't his physical form as Franklin Jones, and he was actually Bubba at the time, he was called Bubba, which meant friend. I was seeing all of this pass before me, and at the same time I was just fully fell into this extraordinary vision. And then he left. So that was my actual first experience with him. Very powerful. Very powerful. And apart from the visual aspect of it, it was the same feeling of the overwhelm of love, like just falling in love. And at that point in time, it didn't have anything to do with him as a man, not at that point. It was just the extraordinary um, nature of being drawn into a, a divine process that was extremely <laughs> stopped my mind. It <laughs> stopped my mind. So how did you follow up at that point? So then I stayed on retreat on the sanctuary, and what occurred is the day later, there was another gathering that was going to happen. And I began to be curious about Adida's life at that point. I started asking questions of the devotees who had been around a lot longer. And there was a gathering where he again began to speak in the cathedral again about the consideration that he calls divine ignorance, which means that while the mind may want to know the truth, truth can only be experienced, wholly experienced, in the heart and with the whole bodily being, and it would be something that would be mutually felt by everyone and everything in the room and beyond. And so the mind falls away. And so that's, that's you, we do not know what it is. We do not know what anything is in truth as truth. There's that profound consideration about divine ignorance, and it relieves you of any search or seeking for what it is through experience and knowledge, but it's a falling into that divine ignorance. So he was speaking about this, and as he was doing it, I noticed that there were men and women around him 
who were taking care of them in different ways. Like it was hot, so it was fanning. It was mid-July, so he was being fanned by, you know, a couple women or a man, and then he would be bringing some, being brought something if he needed something. And I noticed then, well, what's this about? You know, he's being served in some way. Why? And so I started asking questions. Well, unknown to me, my questions began to be brought back to him. In other words, there was a curiosity about him as a human being that he knew that I was interested in. So I was invited to another type of gathering that took place. And I was invited to what was called the King's Room. Now, the King's Room was a room that was downstairs. It was almost like uh, underground because it was beneath an, a building called Great Food Dish. Now, you've been on the sanctuary, so some of these buildings, if I was to describe where they were, you might remember them a bit. Um, but it was a, a building where the kitchen was, and then there was another hall there, and it was next to his private residence. And downstairs, underneath that, there was a room that was called the King's Room. So I was actually um, invited to go to this gathering, and this was the first gathering where I actually participated with him, and he had, uh, we were using accessories, which meant that people were drinking beer and some were smoking cigarettes. And of course, to me, it's like, really? <laughs> what does this have to do with spiritual life and practice? How, even though I had known that this was occurring because of what I read, I didn't think that was going to be happening. But I walked into the room, and in the middle of the room, there was a pool table. So that was another thing that was interesting. And in the room, it was this incredibly interesting kind of deep maroon carpet. And a lot of three sides of the room actually had um, big wood stones. It was made out of stones, you know, so it was literally underground. And then the front of it was large glass. So I came in and I sat down and I was there with devotees and I was drinking and enjoying having conversation. And there was an anticipation again in the air and excitement that Adida would be, Bubba, would be arriving soon. So when he came into the room, he was wearing a Indian-type uh, silk shirt and silk pants that was an extraordinarily brilliant yellow color and a, a V-neck, long sleeve. And when he walked into that room and I saw him, I fell in love with him as a man. In, in addition to what I had experienced spiritually in terms of what's described as his transmission or Shaktipat, the energy that was coming from his being. Everybody transmits. His particular form of transmission is extremely strong and also was his, you could call it charisma, you could call it beauty, but his physical appearance was extremely attractive to me. So in that moment, I actually fell in love with him as a man. And I began to notice that, and of course, I, I didn't know what to think of that, but that's just what happened for me. And when I feel it, you know, I feel the depth of that love, you know, that depth of that emotion of, of falling in love and the extraordinary situation I found myself in that was so unexpected, completely unexpected and, and not anticipated at all. Um, but the room was so full of joy 
and so full of people's celebration and laughter and real, real conversation. It wasn't social. It was real dialogues about important matters. And there he is as he walks in the room and everyone is, um, taken aback just because he is the master, the, the heart master. He's the guru. He's the teacher. So there's a respect that is being acknowledged when he comes in the room. And of course, the first thing that he does is he makes a joke. You know, it was like he just, he, he's, he's always doing something to break the spell of our either being fixed or our being um, tight or being too loose. He's always breaking a spell of our sense of association with him and with one another. Um, and that, of course, was wonderful because it eases everything. You know, humor is beautiful in that way. And that was something he was <laughs> really often engaged it with and in bringing humor um, into our life with him and with one another. And then he started to play pool. And he played pool with a, a couple of the male devotees, Agnello, one of the very earliest devotees. And the amusing thing about it is that I noticed that he was being really cheeky when he was playing pool in that he was making up his own rules, you know, so he wasn't going by the rules of the pool game. And there, that was another form of humor and another way of kind of demonstrating that, okay, well, there are rules here, but okay, we can have fun in breaking the rules. And so it would end up that um, everybody would kind of go with it in an amusing way because it was a pool game and it was amusing. And then at one point, unexpectedly, he came over with his pool cue, with his pool stick, and he took it with the pool cue on the bottom of it, and he put his right down on my right foot, on my big toe. And he said to me, you have finally come down at last. And then he said, I thought you would be a lot taller. And what he meant by that was that I had sent him a Playboy magazine. <laughs> where I had actually signed it. <laughs> and this was done from San Francisco by the prompting of some of the devotees in the household because they thought that would be really amusing. <laughs> okay, so I did it. I thought it would be amusing. And I put, with heartfelt love and lust and devotion, <laughs> something to that effect. You know, it was, it was a, I thought it was a kind of amusing and silly thing to do. Little did I know how that would get played out. But, so I put, he put his, and I can still feel that on my foot, like the coming down, like coming down, being there with him. So that was the first interaction that I had with him humanly. And then as soon as he took it off my foot, I began to swoon. And I, just like a revolving in my body of, again, another force of, of, of spirit and transmission that was going, coming in, you know, from the interaction with him, but then in the room itself, the whole event, everything and everybody there. And it wasn't because we were just intoxicated. It wasn't because of beer or alcohol. I hadn't really drunk that much. Um, but then at a certain point, I began to feel ill. Um, and I couldn't conduct, I couldn't conduct it. You know, I just was, and I ended up going out and I actually had to leave. And I, I went to sleep that night and slept for a really long time, a really deep 
sleep. When I woke up in the morning, I was then again invited to go to his house. So that's, that's another story. And I, I can just, I could tell you endless stories in detail of the environments, the people, the spaces, the places, the interactions with him, um, that would cover the full spectrum of what it would be like to have a relationship with him in every sense, from a man as his intimate, um, as his sexual intimate, as a devotee, and I've practiced in different forms of relationship to him through now coming from 1975 until now, and it's changed quite dramatically, too. At some point, you became part of a, a circle of female devotees who were all in intimate relationship with him. Yes, yes. So when I arrived um, at the Mountain of Attention, and particularly during gathering periods, as, the, as I described the conditions or the disciplines that were required for any devotee to take on to prepare themselves to enter into depths of meditation and various forms of yoga and the process itself, um, they were lifted, and, and so was um, the requirements for access. Like in the earlier days, he was much more readily and easily available. Like people could just say, I really want to see Adi Da. You know, can I come onto the sanctuary? And then typically there's a lot of people who came in and out of his, the ashram quite readily and more easily than it was as years went by. So on the Mountain of Attention Sanctuary, I continued to uh, be there and I ended up being invited by him to live with him. And that occurred in his home. I was there at the Manor of Flowers, and I can sometime I can tell you the details of that particular moment in time. But in terms of the situation of those that were surrounding him, there were he lived on the ashram grounds in his own home, but he was he lived with everyone. That was in part what the name Bubba was about is that he befriended so many people, and he lived with so many people as he lived in the ashram, so he wasn't isolated or separated out from people. He loved interacting with people. So as Baba, as friend, he was easily accessible by a large number of people and who could come and ask him questions, who could be on the ashram, um, and he would move about the ashram freely, even though he had a, a set-apart house. But even in the house that he lived in, um, he didn't live alone. There were always people who were there. Um, I mean, he had his own room, but there were people who would stay and there were people who would sleep in the house, both men and women. Um, and it wasn't as though and be, there weren't men and women who were there who were being sexually active with one another. It's just that it was the place where he was fully integrated. That was that was the kind of time that I entered into. Uh, so at a certain point, as I said, we had a conversation and a time in which we agreed that I would come to live with him and be in his intimate household, as you indicated. And at that time, there was no defined group of orders or congregations or practitioners at a certain level of practice. It was all very fluid. Uh, 
And I began to notice that because of my curiosity of questioning and because of my being asked to live with him, that I became aware that he was also intimate with women at the time. And that felt natural enough to me at that point in time because of my having fallen in love with him. And I think because of my background, it wasn't something that was offensive to me. Having come from L.A. and that kind of a scene, and, and I was also sexually active at a very young age. Um, I wouldn't say that I was, I wasn't promiscuous or widely sexually experienced or anything like that, but my availability to be able to be around him with the knowledge that he had more than one wife, who was Nina, had been Nina, although they weren't married anymore. Um, but you will hear and read about Nina because she was the one who came to um, be with him very, very early on, along with Patricia. So these two women were also there. And although Patricia had another husband at that point in time, I began to become familiar with a number of other women who also he was intimate with. And I would say it wasn't a, it wasn't a large number of women, although there were lots of men and women around him. There were just a few women who he associated with more intimately. And they were the ones who were actually attending to him, you know, that were serving him bodily, serving his environment, um, serving his home, serving the temples. Um, they were ones that he had a, um, a, were comfortable with. And I wasn't just saying human terms, as I've learned as years have gone by. The individuals who are, were around him, there was a, a, a reason for why they were there. And even though we did not know that at a human level altogether, we also certainly didn't understand it from religious and spiritual terms in terms of understanding or knowing the various levels of how the being manifests that is not just visible to the naked eye. So as a spiritual realizer, particularly as a Siddha guru and someone who was a, a teacher in human terms, he could see things about us that we weren't aware of yet. And so those of us who became intimate with him and in his household had uh, different aspects of their personas that were available for this depth of process with him. And we would only understand more about that in time as we would enter into the process more seriously. So I happened to be one of those people, and I knew nothing about the why of it at that time, except for that I was available and I was really wanting with every fiber of my being to participate there with him. And I was of the um, feeling relationship to him that I never wanted to ever be anywhere else again. That's how strong it was in me. Um, and it, it was as if I forgot the world. I became so involved in being around him that it was so I just forgot everything else. And there was a part of that that was, you could call it an infatuation, you know, <laughs> But I was drawn so strongly that it was easy to let go of everything else. In time, I realized that there was aspects of that that I didn't take proper responsibility for. 
and I have had to correct since then. But that was the reasoning for why I was so drawn to be there. And, and, and traditionally, it could be described as a gopi, you know, with, with a guru. Um, I, I think you, you use the amusing language as though we were at a, with a rock star, you know, we were like, he was so, so much charisma that we were just enthralled in that regard. And that's, that's true enough to be said at a, in a way of describing it. Yeah, you did uh, describe him earlier as being like Elvis when you first saw his picture. Yes, he was very attractive. Well, of course, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But for me personally, that was a response to him as a man, one, one yeah. thing. Um, yes, yeah, so as I was there with him in his house, and when I was there in his house, as I said, his house was was the ashram. It was the center of the ashram. And what we did on any day was det determined by what his movements were in relationship to everybody in the ashram and also what was happening in terms of what was being brought to him by people in the ashram um, in terms of news about people, news about the world, news about events, um, bringing things from the great tradition to him, uh, bringing things to him that he maybe had asked for that was of interest to him. One thing was art, always art. He was always interested in traditional art, traditional iconography, um, books from the great tradition. Uh, all sorts of things were being brought to him in this regard. So there would always be interaction with him. Uh, the reciprocation of devotees' interaction of bringing things to him or telling him stories or speaking about his process. And this was happening when I was there in his house. And he also spoke often that was recorded. So all of his teaching through, through decades was recorded. And that's one thing that was occurring when I was around him is that we would sit down in a room together and it would always say, turn the tape recorder on and then he would speak. And often the speaking would be devotees having interaction with him, very personal interactions about their life, about their family, about their practice, about their work, um, about their relationship to uh, certain things that would occur with him personally. Um, and then again, I noticed that, okay, towards the end of the day, more people would leave, and then fewer and fewer remained around him. And it seemed to be understood that there were certain people that would just stay there with him. And lo and behold, at a certain point, I was it was asked of me, do you want to stay, just stay here in the house? And yes, that was exactly where I wanted to be, was to stay in the house. I didn't want to go to the retreat quarters anymore. I wanted to stay in the house. And so... The time that it was decided that I would actually stay there in the house with him, uh, I was. he said to me, if you'd really want to do this with me, you need to go speak to Mark, and you need to communicate what this choice is and why. So I did do that. I went away and had a conversation and, and explained to him what had happened with me and how come I was choosing to stay there in the house with Bubba at the time. And so Mark accepted that. And he understood why, and so we ended our relationship. And he remained in the ashram and was a devotee for quite a lot longer, and also then very shortly after that became intimate with another woman and, and, and was married and had a child with this woman. So he continued in the process and practice himself. 
I let go of all of that and remain focused in the house with Bubba. And then the next thing that became clear to me is that I would begin to learn how to attend to him. And it was very simple things, um, you know, in, in relationship to with bringing him tea or fanning him or, uh, taking care of his certain things in his room, lighting incense, lighting candles, you know, just very simple forms of service. And then I was given a very simple form of service of like, taking care of dishes that he's particularly were given to him to use. You know, I was polishing the silver or just doing very ordinary things. So I was adapting just to being around him and getting comfortable. Um, and that was necessary because of the fact that the force of his energy, the transmission from him was full on 24-7. No matter what he was doing, the event, so to speak, or the context of our life and relationship to him was always about transmission. It was always about the process of being able to learn how to relate to what was being given from him as a Siddha guru. Now, this is traditionally understood, but I had no knowledge of the details of what it takes to be able to adapt to spiritual transmission. And not only spiritual transmission, but transcendental spiritual transmission, which is a uniqueness of the, of his process in, and, um, Shaktipat yoga. And then at a certain point, I spent the night with him. And there was an initiation then in terms of being intimate with him that was no different than sitting in meditation with him, except for that it actually involved the body and the genitals and the feeling being and the breathing being and the actual relationship with a human being bodily. And that was the most profound initiatory process that was experienced to that point because it, my whole being was given over in love and every cell of my being actual, actually psychophysically being active was also imbued with this transmission. And that was a revelation that has taken a lifetime, and I don't think it will ever end in terms of, of incorporating what that relationship is altogether. That kind of intimacy with him in human terms and spiritual terms that included sexuality lasted for decades. Julie, you described yourself earlier, before you moved up to Northern California, as being highly neurotic. And so I imagine you, you brought some of that with you into his household. Yes, I did. I did. <laughs> That's interesting you should ask that question, because being anorexic and bulimic, I was about 84 pounds. <laughs> when I first came to see Adi Da. So I was very, very tiny. And I was not, um, I wouldn't say I was fully grounded in my physical body. Uh, when you have that kind of an ailment and, and neuroses, there's a disconnect from the physical body. So you're, um, 
feeling things peripherally often or above and beyond. You know, you, you become more ethereal. And so um, in coming into his physical company, because he was so grounded, um, I noticed that something happened immediately. And that was that whatever it was that I was feeling that I was disconnected from and what I was suffering in the physical body, and in terms of my need to um, dismiss the physical body because I was apparently suffering in it, which is why I was anorexic and bulimic, and also the neurosis about putting weight on, um, which is part of the um, suffering of anyone who has this type of eating disorder. Um, there's a lot I could say about that, but I won't say that right now. But when I came into his company, my anorexic bulimia liabilities stopped. Just unexpectedly stopped. And what I can feel about that, and this isn't retrospective, this is actually what I felt at the time, is that I became completely connected at the heart with something that was sustaining that wasn't dependent upon food, it wasn't dependent upon how I appeared, it wasn't dependent upon what people thought of me, it wasn't dependent upon my neurosis about being able to fulfill the expectations of being what I seen. It was something so profoundly deep with it that, that I came to rest. Normally one would associate a, a certain amount of petty jealousies emerging between different women all living together surrounded by a single male or, or surrounding a single male. Yes, yes. So at this particular time when I arrived, there began to form an, an order of women around him. In 1975 through 1979, the manner in which he lived began to change a bit. And all the women who were there with him, and I think that there probably weren't more than maybe oh, 15 that were around him at that time, possibly. Um, but that, didn't, that many didn't actually live with him. There were fewer than that that actually lived in the house with him, maybe five or so at that time. And then I noticed that one thing that was interesting between the women, well, for me, I think because I was so one-pointed and so distracted in terms of my directness with him, I didn't notice a lot about petty jealousies. I didn't see any re reactivity from the women around him at that point in time in relationship to me. Honestly, I didn't. And it could have been because I wasn't noticing it, and I wasn't in the know relative to the politics. I did discover that in time. However, at that moment in time, there wasn't, um, it was just ecstatic. You know, the, the joy of being there. And the women actually were very, very supportive of me. Like they, they helped me adapt. They embraced me. I be, befriended certain of the women really closely. I could talk with them freely. They would help me understand things, help me um, be able to not just understand 
what it was like to live around him as a man that also helped me understand the traditional precedents for it. Um, speaking about how to enter into the sexual yoga as a spiritual process um, that was part of the meditative process. There were dip, depth levels um, that were going on synchronous with the physical aspect of being there with him simultaneously. Nina, incredible. I don't even know how to describe her. She is just a sweetheart, an incredible woman that I feel entirely indebted to. Um, it, it was, in particular, her, I became, you know, very close to. Um, there was River, her, her name. Um, Sharon was her, her given name. Um, she would, became one of the mothers of, of Beloved's children. Um, yeah, that there were, there's Marsha. There's many women that, that I, that really helped me a lot. And soon what happened within the year that I was there, it was determined that there were nine women that he wanted to be able to have around him that he would begin to work with more intensively. And what working with more intensively meant is that along with these nine women, there was also a group of men similarly that he wanted to work with more closely. And these men were not men that he was humanly, sexually, emotionally intimate with. He never had intimacies with any men in that regard, ever, in sexual terms. Was he emotionally in love? Yes, <laughs> he was in love with everyone. <laughs> but he did have specifically strong male intimates too that were around him that he was working with is in a more potent or intensive way. And with these uh, women and with these men, he was wanting to establish what he described as a renunciate order. And renunciation aligned with his meaning of renunciation. And so within the first couple of years that I was there, he ended up telling the entire worldwide gathering and everyone in the ashram that he needed to become more focused in a group of individuals that were available to advance in the practice. And therefore, he would not be as freely and easily available as anybody who would come in and out off the street or just enter into the ashram freely. So there began to be called um, around him more formalities of association and um, more signs of demonstration of maturity was required of people in order to be able to come to the ashram or to be able to enter into um, a relationship with him more directly or to be involved in retreats uh, or to sit in darshan, occasions where he would just sit silently or he would speak with people. So that transition happened fairly soon after I arrived there. Well, I guess it would be useful if we could look back from the point of view of 1992, near the time when you ended your relationship in his household. You'd been there for 16 years. So, what would you say about the 16-year-long process? <laughs> 
That would have to be a really big nutshell. <laughs> but I will try to say it as succinctly as possible. For me to speak about Arida in a comprehensive way, and for anyone to get a feeling of what my life was like for 16 years with him and that kind of proximity would require an understanding of his teaching, uh, would require an open heart to be able to feel him, even if it isn't a full recognition of his confession of the divine self condition, as he describes it, the bride itself, but it would also require an understanding of the great tradition. And it would un require an understanding of the seven stages of life, which is a schema that he established for devotees and whoever is interested to be able to understand the great tradition of humankind um, that I described earlier. So the 16 years was a... an involvement in him in every sense of the way that I previously described, wherein he was teaching me and awakening me in the seventh stage process. That is about going beyond the sense of identifying with a, sep a sense of separate self. And what he describes as the act of the ego, I. Now, that doesn't mean that I have fully accomplished that, even at this point in time. But I, he woke me up into that process entirely. So that in the way that he describes the first six stages of life all the way to the seventh stage of life, I entered into a profound, very, very in-depth, detailed consideration, lived and studied and experienced relative to every aspect of life in the first six stages in the context of the seventh stage awakening, which is the awakening into reality, the feeling of being, the heart itself, as love lists the heart itself as love bliss. And that is the measure within which everything that I considered about life was to be felt. So I entered into this with him, with others, with many others through the 16 years. And it took many, many forms, as I described, various times of discipline, going traveling different places, going around the globe, being in different ashrams, establishing different ashrams with him, entering into his art process with him in terms of his appreciation of art, um, his interactions with non-devotees, um, he, I saw his interaction through these six years with people who weren't practitioners. I saw him traveling the world and sitting in front of people who were public people or beginning practitioners. I entered into processes with just a few, very few devotees who were involved in very advanced, most esoteric aspects of the process. And at a, I practiced, uh, from 1986, for six years, I practiced the most advanced process called the perfect practice, um, perfect knowledge practice in relationship to him, which could be correspond 
most easily with uh, the teachings of um, Advaita Vedanta or Ramana Maharshi as the six-stage jnanis would practice. I also um, was given in his company um, because of the psychophysical patterns or called vasanas or um, karmas of this being, I also was awakened into various forms of samadhis associated with all of the different traditions. Um, again, this might sound very technical, but for people who understand what the different forms of samadhis are associated with the different chakras of the body-mind, people who are yogis, um, people who are mystics, uh, people who are um, psychophysically awake, you know, in the different dimensions of, of manifest being, all of these things were awakened, and my awareness of the existence of these realities are alive in me. And so over those 16 years, he gave me the means of being able to um, discriminate intelligently, um, to take responsibility for life with that understanding relative to the, the condition within which we find ourselves. And I'm not the only one. You know, this occurred with many, many people. And that continued to occur with me after 1992 when uh, there was an event that happened um, that was really, really profound for his work. And this is important to understand about Adi Da, um, because I know there's much controversy around Adi Da in the world, and um, he was a difficult man. <laughs> um, and he, he was very um, demanding and, and very strong. And I would say all of those qualities were coupled with the passion of his heart for the liberation of beings and the ability for him to feel so wide and to encompass so much in terms of his relationship to everyone and everything. He was urgent in terms of wanting to help everyone, but he couldn't do what he needed to do with everyone, so he began to work more and more privately. Um, and that still encompassed him being crazy wise. It's just that he didn't do it with everyone in the same fashion. And over the years, it took many different um, shapes and forms in terms of what it was that he converged with and what he coincided with in terms of the individuals who were around him. So in 1992, when I actually ended up leaving the island of Naitamba, he indicated to the, there only, at that point in time, there were only four women around him who were intimate with him. And from 1986 to 1992, I was actually a celibate. I was no longer sexually intimate with him. I attended him bodily. I was his principal masseuse during those years and, and served him bodily. And uh, that was extraordinary. The, in, a, in a very real sense, the sexual process had fulfilled itself. <laughs> um, it, you know, it became so profound that the necessity of even the engagement in it was fulfilled through the depth of the process of, of being and being intimate with him in, in any form of action with him and in life. And so at that point in time, I, I um, assumed a, a sadhana of celibacy. Now, I was the only one. The others continued with their intimacy. I extended, he asked me to extend that process of celibacy, and I spent those many years um, 
most of the time in the meditation hall. I spent huge hours a day in the depth of meditation. And also I was given the responsibility for taking care of sacred spaces, the temples and the halls and his home, which was a temple too, even though he lived there physically in very real human ways. And I also was given the responsibility to help um, to raise the three three children that were his blood children and the and one other um, child that was the daughter of, of Patricia and William. And the mothers and fathers also lived intimately with us um, that had other children so that the children had a culture around them as they were raised. Uh, so I, I was the um, spiritual guide for these children. So that defined my life for a number of years. Uh, it was an, an extraordinary gift of opportunity to be able to work with these beautiful young beings and who I still have, you know, a relationship with now, although it's changed significantly. So from 1992, when I left, he indicated that uh, while he had worked for all those years, even prior to my being with him, really from, you know, the late 60s into the early 70s, he was working with many, many beings and traditions, you know, going to India and back and with teachers and such, he indicated that the particular form of his avataric incarnation as the Ruchira avatar had not fully fulfilled itself sufficiently in order for there to be a, a true culture that could carry on after his physical body passed away. And he said that there was an urgency for that to occur in order to authenticate the particularly unique process that he had come down, that's what avatar means, to simply cross down from a higher, in association with the body-mind, a seemingly higher domain into the physical, psychophysical, cosmic domain. And our domain here is what in, in the... Uh, mandala of manifest existence is understood to be the red-yellow realm, and there are higher realms of manifestation that associate with vibrations and colors of manifest light. And um, here in the red-yellow realm, it's actually an extraordinary blessing to be here because as human beings, we have access to all these different dimensions, and you know this full well, <laughs> given <laughs> given the um, extraordinary amount of dedication and time your life has been to speaking with individuals who are aware of these various realities that are also in coincide with our grossest bodily dimension here. And so he indicated that his process of the Ruchira avatar was about awakening beings to the condition of the bright, which is what he describes as reality itself, consciousness itself, that is true of everyone and everything. It's actually the native feeling of being, the native feeling of being, which is there's no separation between any of us in this native state of being. It has nothing to do with being parts of different traditions or different cultures or different experiences or different points of view. This native state of being is at the heart. The feeling of love, bliss, being itself 
that is consciously awake and responsible for feeling discrimination to stay in and at the heart and so that there is no conflict in relationship to the apparent duality that creates differences of mind and experience. So this transmission was always active and it, it's constant because as he describes it, it's the fundamental foundation context that is prior to and eternally present and felt and intuited by every being, everyone and everything. And my life is a process of that, that participation in that reality that is obvious. And the, the, the process is eternal then. So you enter into realization. The separate self does not become realized. So in 1992, he said that this understanding and this realization was not firmly established sufficiently in the culture even surrounding him. And he had actually prophesied that this would happen even before he began speaking. And he wrote a book that's called The Trilogy. It's a poetic book. He's an artist, a literary artist, in addition to a visual artist. And in this book, he describes what is called the scapegoat and how the ego act will end up not relating to God, to the heart, to the divine, in a, in a manner that will transcend the differing points of view so that there will be no conflict amongst one another. And he, and he said, look at the way that you all live around me. There's ego politics. <laughs> what you were talking about earlier, not just the jealousies and the reaction of, you know, me, mine, and other, and got to have this, you can't have this, you know, ownership and controlling of things in relationship to one another. He said, you're doing this with one another, even though we've established a sacred domain, a culture, a seeming culture, um, you understand something about me, something about my transmission, but you have not realized it most fully yet. And the profundity of doing that was what I was just beginning to comprehend after 16 years and after having practiced the most advanced practice. I felt like I was a beginner all over again in the sense that the radical nature of what it was that he was bringing to humanity um, required an incredible preparedness on the part of, of people to be available um, for that undoing of the separate self-identity and to be able to participate in the true self, the very self that is true of each and all, and then to be able to be that vulnerable, that open, that transparent, that exposed, having turned every rock of the shadow to be able to test it to the point where you're aware that nothing can separate you from the heart of love. And that was, that was the process with him. And in 1992, he said to the four of us who were around him, we were the Kanyas. We established what was called the Kanya order. And we were practicing in the domain of consciousness itself. We were practicing in the domain of the heart itself that was the witness of everyone and everything in terms of what would arise and fall as experience in mind. And he said that the depth of our process had not occurred sufficiently because energy and attention was being drawn out from that domain such that we could not fall 
where there was the dissolution of the sense of separate self. And he said it had to do with this fact. In truth, we are not separate beings, any of us. There is the understanding of the unity, the prior unity, the interconnectedness between us all. Even as you sit on the side, the other side of the globe as I am right now, there is no difference or distinction in terms of the fabric of, of light itself. And, and the light that he describes as unqualified love bliss is the, is the very self condition in which we are awake. That conscious awareness, that feeling awareness is true of you and of I, seemingly separate. But to live in truth is to be awake in that even beyond lifetimes, you know, no matter what room you move into, no matter who you associate with. So he indicated you all are still somewhat assuming that somehow you're separate. And I'm speaking to you, and all the years that I have been speaking to you, I have been speaking to that heart that is only one, that is in you and awake and aware. And I am drawing you into that space of being, and therefore, I'm speaking through you to all beings. And the world itself is not prepared yet to receive me. And so some of you may have to leave my company to go out into the world. <laughs> now, when he said that to us, he says, I don't know which one of you it will be or how it will happen, but some of you not only the four of us, but other devotees would have to leave his intimate sphere and be scattered around. And honestly, based on what I have communicated and, and tried to describe to you, that was the last thing I wanted to do. I never, ever thought I would leave his intimate sphere, nor did I want to. But as events unfolded over the year, I fell in love with another man unexpectedly. And part of the process of reality consideration that encompassed not just the emotional sexual character, but the deeper parts of the personality, the deeper personality, um, that the soul that corresponds with the gross embodiment, there are the saunas that have to be undone for the spiritual process to take hold at that depth. And so I ended up being one of the ones that left. He blessed my relationship with Nick. And Nick and I have been together now for 31 years. And upon that leaving, as he said to me at that moment in time, not expecting or knowing that I would be the one, but I ended up being that one. And so did um, another woman, Kimberly, and others who served around him. And many over the years have ended up coming and going. He works through many beings in the world that may not be, even he, though he's not physically alive, that process, the divine process that not as is not and was never exclusive to his physical embodiment is still active because it is the divine self-condition that is the grace or the spirit that moves and draws the heart to awaken. And therefore, in the... 30 years after that, it was equally as profound for me to realize that being close to his physical body was not essential for the process, that anyone, anywhere, 
Even beyond his physical body and his physical death, this process is alive, as it always has been throughout seeming time and space. The divine process is the reality and the truth of anyone's divinely spiritual and transcendental condition. Julie, let me ask you this question. You've talked about during the 16 years you were with him, his transmission was constant. And uh, you've, you've described that transmission in, in terms of he being the Ruchira avatar, the, the transmission of the bright, of, of something entirely radiant, entirely joyful and, and blissful. Uh, and, and yet, I, I wonder, and I imagine our viewers will wonder, he was also a human being. He experienced illness. He experienced, any human being would experience frustrations and, and disappointments. Uh, and I gather he was disappointed that his teachings didn't reach more people in his own lifetime. What was that like? Yes, well, you, you, your description is, is right on and, and apt, and, I, and I'm very glad that you've asked this question. <sighs> Therein lies the paradox of our own embodiment, that very question about him, a seeming other, and the seeming dichotomy between, call it God, call it the divine light, call it bliss, call it whatever you want to name it. The certainty that love and bliss and conscious being is present. And the paradox that we also arise in a real situation, even though many mystics or realizers will say this is an illusion, it's also very real. <laughs> and very real, we are very real seeming entities that experience everything profoundly and to varying degrees carrying various karmas and various sensibilities and various awareness. So with Adi Da, because his bodily being and that spirit of transmission was uh, so potent in him, every aspect of his human being was magnified. Like, so love was magnified. Um, every emotion that you could feel was magnified to, to the to infinity, <laughs> you know, and and it was not it was not held back. Like there was no taboo around um, feeling everything or experience everything, and he, and he helped us feel that by virtue of him being um, transparent and not strategic or um, uh, calculating or um, not in a program, you know, he, he wasn't confined to traditional or conventional norms. He was free. He was a free man. So 
yes, indeed, did he experience all of these emotions. And you would also see and feel that, oh, yes, he has a gross persona. He has all of that, all of those aspects of being that all of us have. And what his life was a demonstration of was showing us that it's not a contradiction. Yet, if you are actually living with the divine heart intent and purpose to realize and remain constantly and perpetually established in the divine self-condition, then you develop the discrimination of the heart. So does the grosser personality end up being entirely amoral? No. Is it going to be aggressively harmful to others? No. Is it going to be perfect and never doing any of that to any degree? No. In other words, the full spectrum of the light and the dark manifested in his being as it does in anyone. So for myself personally, I, I just describe that in rather broad terms and in rather esoteric terms that would be considered by some people. Um, but it applies to human life. It tries, applies to the very ordinary moments of constantly living with him where everything was being triggered. Triggers, triggers going off constantly relative to how he may respond to me or may not respond to me, what I want or what I don't want, what he wants or what he doesn't want. All of those interactions at a very human level are occurring. And the measure was always, are my choices or reactions, are his choices or responses, are they serving the process of reality truth and that awakening or not? So there was always that evaluation going on in terms of whether or not what we did or what he did served the process. And that question that you just asked is the meat of it. And most people want to avoid that. And I actually have found that because my family and myself was actually involved in a lot, one of the lawsuits that occurred early on in relationship to the controversies around Beloved's um, manifest personality, um, many accusations that were made in relationship to him um, that the media got a hold of and all of that. And, and I, I and my family suffered that attack you know, from the public and from a few ex-devotees who were disgruntled around what they experienced around him because of the fact that, yes, he would get angry, very angry, very angry, and shout very loudly at times. He would get extremely frustrated about things. There would be the flip side of it, as I've described already. He would be free to experiment with somebody who wanted to come into his company to say, oh, you know, I would like to, um, well, my, you know, I, I had this weird desire ever since I was a child, you know, that I, I would really like to have sex with a few women. You know, just for example, because sex is the thing that everybody's occupied and it's such a taboo subject. So, okay, well, you know, find, is there anybody who you, who would be possibly willing to do that with you and, and learn about it? 
you know, experiment with that. And then so somebody would go off and they would do that kind of thing, or if they were really close to him, like myself, for example, mm, I think I might have an interest in women too. Oh, okay, so what's that about? What does that feel like? How does that relate to you as a full persona? How important is it to you? What is the significance of it? Is that something that will serve your spiritual process to engage in that? Or is it better for you to practice the sexual yoga with a man, with me, or me with another man? I mean, there were all types of, of um, possibilities that were evaluated in terms of their significance in relationship to the primary process. So that corresponds with what you described, and I, I hear you um, taking into account that that the process, the realization, call it satsang, call it Ruchira Avatara Bhakti Yoga, all sorts of names you could give it, but it's the fundamental transmission of truth or being, conscious light, the bright itself. Everything always occurred in relationship to that. It's like the Shruti note or the, the drone note in classical um, Eastern music um, or the drum. You know, the, there's a, a primary rhythm that you never lose, never, ever lose the connection with so that you're constantly in that vibration. Everything's measured by the heart. Everything's measured by the heart. So every experience that arises in and out of that, you consider every aspect, aspect of the being. So with Adida, there were wild times. Wild's a good word. They were, they were over the top. They were um, confronting um, I reacted many times, significantly. You call yourself God? You know, <laughs> like, what's this about? You know, you know, even, even when I thought I was going to have to leave, you know, I don't want to leave. I don't want to leave. You know, and in his passion with even tears in his eyes, but this is necessary for the divine process. You know, these kinds of impassioned moments in which all people experience. Any devotee who wants to give you a view of Adida as if it was, you know, a whitewashed version of being just blissful is not being honest. Um, and I object to that. And that's in part why I actually have, I'm so grateful that you're having this conversation with me. And I feel quite emotional about it because for a period of time, after Adida passed away, um, and even to the day that he passed away, his frustration increased, increased because the urgency of his need to say to any individual being or to group of individuals that you have most perfectly understood, or this consistent realization is so, such that you could establish a true culture that could serve and carry on my work with integrity, he said, you have only barely begun. You have hardly even begun. And this is after 40 years of some people being intimate with him and still having communicated that, no, it's not complete yet. Synchronously saying it's an eternal process. Why? No separate selves realize this. Realization is the self-condition, which is always already the case. 
It's always already true, but the whole bodily being in the world and life must conform to that awakening in order for the heart to be the one that is acting with feeling discrimination and responsibility. And he said that in order for me to acknowledge that, there would have to be a number of beings that would show signs that this is so, which would inevitably manifest as a collective of individuals that show authenticity and integrity. And he had in in no uncertain terms, even though he never, he was hoping it would be different, but he was always honest and true. He said, it is not happening. What you are manifesting as a gathering around me is a cult. What you are manifesting around me is scapegoating me You scapegoat others, and therefore you interfere with the process of divine self-realization. You are still what he called mummers. You're still acting the act of the ego rather than allowing the divine self-condition to be the one that lives and breathes you, the one that is the heart, the one that is true love. He said, look at the conflict in you all. Look at the politics that you're dramatizing. Looking how, look at the world is not even attracted to you as a gathering. And, and, and that's one thing that I actually learned as time went by being out of his physical company. And that was that I, more I integrated with the world. I kept hearing people saying a few things that were really, really important. And a lot of times cultic devotees don't want to talk about this is that how come you're not realized yet? You know, is, is that a reflection of, of Adi Da? Well, I can understand the profundities of what Adi Da is speaking, but I don't see the demonstration of it as a culture. You know, you're all cultic. You're not very welcoming. You know, you, you act as though you've got a secret and nobody else could understand. Or you're just kind of a club that it's hard to get into. All sorts of things. Or people would say, I really appreciate what Adi Da is saying, but maybe he's a bit mad. Is he an ego? You know, is he just full of himself? You know, I, I got to combine with all of the objections and uh, that people have had. And in, in 2011, I combined so significantly with them, I realized that that mind is not other than this mind that seems to be associated with this personality and this persona, that mind itself is all a collective mind, a profundity of depth that not only does the body itself need to be open and vulnerable and trusting, the mind itself that is in the collective psyche must be gone beyond. So to presume that as a devotee you don't have those reactions and you don't have those negative thoughts is delusional. So I, I went through the process from 2011 to transcend and to go beyond what I also had to recognize was so in myself and come to an understanding that the whole process of his embodiment wasn't dependent upon his body or the mind of response in relationship to what seemed to be about how he played or how he was or how he reacted or how he reflected, what he did or didn't do. There was always a lesson that was to be learned about that. There was always a radical understanding, a self-understanding that was necessary in order for the heart to remain open, to remain in the room of being itself or the bride itself. In other words, to be established in 
the self-condition. So that's been, that's the process. And, and in relationship to the formal gathering since then, I have been unable to continue to participate in that, <laughs> which I think I, I spoke to you about before. I, I, I am no longer associated with the formal gathering. Um, the whole gathering, the whole worldwide gathering is in a conundrum right now relative to the transcending of being a cult around Adi Da and his life and what happened while he is alive. That is what is occurring. And to, to present it as being anything else is, is the error. And yet there are a number of people who have, um, and I'm just going to say it plainly because I don't want to play games. It's too serious to play games. I'm not playing a game here at all. The integrity of Adi Da's work and what he did is too significant for it to be dismissed by gossip or by hearsay or by lack of, of even the willingness to be open enough to even consider it um, or, or to be able to hear devotees speak about it from every perspective or point of view. Um, but after he passed away, there was a power grab that occurred in relationship to him, and um, that actually ended up taking over his work, and the narrative has taken a shift, and, and lies have been being told, and secrets have been being kept around what happened, and people are being muzzled relative to actually speaking about the details of, of the practice and what occurred in his lifetime, as if there was something so horrible that happened that he could never be given for, for, we could never be forgiven for, that would just, you know, make it impossible for anybody to accept or hear about this divine process that occurred in his company. I don't agree with that orientation. I feel that transparency is absolutely essential because we're not different than anyone or any being. And the truth is necessary. I think, Julie, you've you've said it all for now. Yeah, and there's many, many more details. I don't know how easily acceptable it is, or if it, it doesn't have to be acceptable. It just feels important to say it, you know, and and to say it truly, as I as I understand it and have practiced it now since I was 18 years old and. I'm going on 68 now. I know in a way we've just scratched the surface. We went over 16 years of your life in just a few minutes. And I actually think it would be a good idea if we come back sometime and, and review some of those practices in more detail. For example, the different forms of samadhi that, uh, you you experience. I th I think that would be a wonderful story to share with our viewers. But uh, I would say for now, you you've given our viewers a fabulous overview of your life for the uh, almost half a century in relationship to one of the most extraordinary human beings. Well, thank you, thank you. I'm. Mm. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm very grateful to you, Julie, and 
I want to thank you for being with me. Thank you. And I, I really look forward to going forward with you in this. Wonderful. Wonderful. We'll have more conversations. I think our viewers will will find them of, of great value. And I will close the way I normally close our interviews by thanking those of you who have been watching or listening to this conversation. I want to thank you profoundly because you are the reason that we are here. Precisely. Thank you. I imagine that by now many of you already realize that, in conjunction with White Crow Books, we've just launched the new Thinking Aloud Dialogues book imprint, and our first title is, Is There Life After Death? New Thinking Aloud is a non-profit endeavor. Your contributions to the New Thinking Aloud Foundation make a meaningful difference in our ability to produce new videos.